I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, you may be reading from a different version, or the NIV, for example. Um, as we've been going through Colossians, sometimes what I've done is say what a wo- look at what the ESV translation says, and then kind of compare it with maybe a word uh, in the NIV, which is similar, maybe just gives a slightly different flavor. Uh, so we may well do that as we, uh, as we go through. So we're in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to read a few verses from verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As I've been preparing, um, a question has cropped up in my mind, which is what we're going to look at this morning. And the question is this. What does a healthy church look like? Uh, we've been praying right now for, uh, for healthy bodies, for bodies to become healthy. Sometimes in the Bible, the, the church is described as a body. So what does a healthy church look like? What does a healthy corporate body look like? Look like Now, in a sense, as we've been running through Colossians uh, on occasion, that's effectively the, answer we've been, the question we've been answering all the way through. What does a healthy church look like? Well, a healthy church understands who Jesus is, understands that Jesus is completely the Son of God and completely human and was therefore able to come to earth, taking on human flesh, and become a sacrifice that was acceptable in God's sight so that we could come into relationship with God ourselves, being fully forgiven of all our sins. So a healthy church understands who Christ is. A healthy church is one that is constantly doing battle and getting rid of any trace of legalism. Sometimes in church life what can creep in is a kind of pressure to to stick to what are, to all intents and purposes, random rules where we kind of think, well, maybe uh, in order to please God, in order to be accepted by God, um, I need to earn his love, I need to earn his acceptance in some way, so I'm going to have to keep these certain rules. That's called legalism, and that a healthy church will avoid legalism like the plague. Uh, we've also seen in the last couple of times we've been uh, looking at Colossians, that a healthy church will be... Uh, putting to death sexual immorality. We looked at that in chapter 3, verse 5, along with impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So in a healthy church, there's no hint of uh, sexual immorality or impropriety. There's also uh, no anger that's getting dwelt on and that's kind of building up into a grudge. There's no kind of malicious intent to do harm in a healthy church. There's, There's no slander. There's no malice. There's no kind of gossiping that's intended to to bring someone else down. Those are all things we've been looking at 
when we've looked at Colossians before. We're going to look at three further things today uh, from the, the verses that we've just read. Three further things that describe a healthy church. Number one, healthy church is completely and wonderfully Christ-centered. Or, to put it in other ways, a healthy church is Christ-obsessed. It's Jesus-focused. It's crazy about Christ. A healthy church loves to meet with Jesus, loves to sing to Jesus, loves to talk about Jesus, loves to share Jesus, loves to pray in the name of Jesus. A healthy church can't get enough of him. Now we've seen that in the preceding verse to, the, to where we just started, at the very end of verse 11. Verse 11 says this, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So in the church, Christ is living in every one of us, and Christ matters more than anything else. He is all that matters to every member of a healthy church. Now how does that present itself? How does that show itself in a few ways? What flows out of that is an abundance of thanksgiving, of thankfulness. And we see that here in a few verses quite a few times. So verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, verse 17, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There is an abundance of thanks. Now this is not the sort of thanksgiving or the thankfulness that could be termed sort of dry dutiful obligation. If it's your birthday and you receive gifts from far-flung relatives, um, the chances are it's the done thing, really, is to write some thank you letters. Now, I can remember, as a, as a youngster, um, being stood over and told, you will write a thank you letter to, for the sake of argument, Auntie Flo. I don't actually have an Auntie Flo, but I don't want to name and shame. Um, you will write that thank you letter to that relative. But I can't even remember what they gave me. It wasn't really that significant. Well, let's try and work it out. If you can't remember what it was, just make it sound like you remember. Thank you so much, Auntie Flo, for my presence. You'd never believe how much I like it. I've not stopped using it ever since I got it. And uh, I'm just so thankful. See you next Christmas. Dad. Um, that is not the sort of thanksgiving that we're talking about here. Uh, this is more the kind of thanksgiving um, that would have been, that was received, I suppose, by a guy called Captain Chesley Sullenberger. Now, that name might not um, mean a great deal to you until I say this. A few months back, there was a U.S. airway flight, 1549, that took off from New York and very quickly flew into a massive flock of birds. And the pilot realized very soon, Captain Sullenberger, um, that all power to the engines was lost. The flight was only 
you know, had only just taken off. And he realized um, that there was no opportunity. There really wasn't time. Because this plane had lost so much power, it didn't have time to circle back and land at the runway it had just taken off from. So first of all, he thought, well, maybe there's some other runways nearby, other airports I can get to. That was his first kind of idea, if you like. Then realized, no, they weren't an option, so he ditched it in the Hudson, Hudson River. And that is quite impressive, because normally on impact in water, there's not much expectation of everyone surviving, but in fact, what actually happened, he did it so perfectly, lining up the plane so right, with the right angle at the right speed, that it kind of did a belly flop on the water, and everyone was saved. If you were on that flight, I don't think you would need that much encouragement to really thank that pilot from the depth of your heart. It wouldn't be kind of like just walking out, cheers mate, and you're off. <laughs> you, <laughs> I would suggest this guy has just saved your life from certain death it would almost seem. Now surely what would naturally flow out of that is thanksgiving. Now I'd suggest that is a sort of thanksgiving that Paul is talking about here. Now that, you know, hats off to Captain Sullenberger. But actually, even that does not compare to the sort of rescue mission that Christ did for us. What looked absolutely precarious to the point of absolute doom, he brought a rescue by dying himself for us. So, because a healthy church is Christ-centered, and in a healthy church, to each person, Christ is all that matters. Thankfulness is what naturally is prompted and stirs up and comes out. Whether we're together like now, and when we're hearing kind of testimonies and we're singing songs of thanksgiving, or other times, what's natural is for thanksgiving, thankfulness, to well up. Now, because a healthy church is Christ-centered, it's also, as well as being thankful, it's also becoming more like him. Paul is writing to this church to say, put on a whole bunch of characteristics that really describe Jesus. He's been saying, you know, put to death these things, put off, put away that stuff, because in effect, that doesn't belong to Christ. That's not what Jesus is like. He has rescued you. You now belong to him. It totally make, makes sense, therefore, to, uh, to pursue him and to seek to put on that which, in a sense, he's already made us. He's already made us his children. We've already become, as it were, little Christs. And now we're called to live out who we are in Christ. So that means putting on characteristics that Jesus demonstrated in his life. And we could look at a few of those, but let's just look at the first one for now, of compassion. We're told there, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, to put on compassion. Now, what is compassion? A kind of cobbled together definition is this, a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for someone else who is suffering, along with a strong desire to alleviate that suffering, a strong desire to do something about it that will take that suffering away. Jesus is and was when he walked on earth compassionate, and we see this in his ministry in a number of places, in the book of Matthew, for example, Book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 36. 
It says there about Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed or harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus' ministry to this great massive crowd was coming out of a compassion for them, coming out of a concern for their plights. He understood, even if they didn't understand themselves, that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we see elsewhere as well in the book of Matthew, chapter 14 and verse 14. This is the part where Jesus is in fact about to feed the 5,000. It says there in chapter 14, verse 14 of Matthew, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus' miracles were prompted by a compassion, prompted by a concern and a consideration, a sympathy for other people. What's amazing about that particular situation is that Jesus had just heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded. Now it said in verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from them, from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded. John the Baptist, whom he knew, who had baptized him, John the Baptist, who was preparing a way for Jesus, and Jesus, who understands that his ultimate destiny on earth was similar to that of John the Baptist, isn't it not unsurprising that Jesus wanted to get some time by himself? Jesus wanted to withdraw at that point. Get with his father. What happens is a crowd turns up. How inconvenient. How inconsiderate. What's Jesus' response? Compassion. Seeing where these people are at, preferring their needs to his own. And so he's compassionate. Now putting on, therefore, characteristics that Jesus demonstrated in the church doesn't mean that we therefore just become like a little holy huddle, a clique, that's very concerned with our relationship with God, but to the exclusion of other people. Becoming Christ-like means putting on a disposition that cares about other people, that cares about other people in the church that we know, and also cares about people that we don't know, that we come across, that cares about people who don't yet know Christ, and so will passionately pray for them, and will pray for people to be healed, and will that compassion will flow out into the very next thing we see on this list, kindness. Compassion is that feeling on the inside of caring for people that flows out in acts of kindness. It's demonstrated. It results in things happening. So church that is healthy is therefore definitely one that is looking outward. One that is concerned not just only in personal interests, but in other people's interests. So healthy church is Christ-centered or Christ-crazy or Christ-obsessed, Christ-focused, becoming more like him. What strikes me from these verses also is that a healthy church will understand this, that there is no such thing as a perfect church. It can be healthy, but a healthy church understands. No, there's no such thing as a perfect church. What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the church and a church 
is not a building, it's a group of people. So we are now sat in the Jubilee Centre. The Jubilee Centre is not City Church Sheffield. If the Jubilee Centre was blown up tomorrow, City Church Sheffield would still be very much alive. We'd have a problem about where to meet, but the church would still be alive. Um, so the church is a group of people. The church is a group of people who've been chosen by God. Again, in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. We are chosen by God. Now, God is not in the habit of choosing perfect people to be in his church. For Firstly, the simple reason that um, for quite some time now, perfect people have been in quite short supply. Uh, but also, God has a purpose in choosing and using people who aren't perfect. So if you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29, we see there, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has a purpose in calling us, choosing us, despite weaknesses, despite frailties, despite imperfections, to be part of his people, to be part of his plan, for the very reason that God wants to get glory for himself. And God gets glory for himself when we're in a position where we cannot boast in ourselves. We only boast in Christ. So God is pleased. God has a purpose in choosing people that are not perfect. But that has implications. Paul understands these implications. So he's writing to the Colossians saying, come on guys, be healthy. But he makes allowances for the fact that sometimes actually things won't always work out perfectly. Hence, verse 13, how are all these characteristics that we put on to be demonstrated? Firstly, bearing with one another. If you've been in church for any amount of time, I think you'll understand that there is a need, probably on a daily, weekly basis, to actually bear with each other. Which uh, might sound slightly harsh to paraphrase it like this, to endure each other or to put up with each other. In other words, don't expect perfection in other people in the church. That's what I think is meant by bearing with one another, suffering one another, not expecting perfection. So we see there the need to bear with each other. We also see there, if one has a complaint or if a, gre a grievance crops up, Paul understands that even in a healthy church, there will be cause for complaint. There will even be cause for grievance. And some of those will be legitimate grievance. It doesn't take long in the early church when it was in its infancy and it just started in the book of Acts and in chapter 6 for a grievance or a complaint to arise. You would think up until that point, more or less, bar Ananias and Sapphira, you would think things were going pretty well. People were being added to their number daily. Signs and wonders were being performed to kind of attest to God and his, uh, his salvation in, in Jesus Christ. Things are amazing. Acts 6 crops up and a complaint comes. 
Verse 1, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, in the daily distribution of food. So, a complaint crops up, one that probably has its roots in something practical. I don't think there was a deliberate attempt here, I might be wrong, but I don't think there was a deliberate attempt here um, to ignore a certain group of widows and say, no, no, we, we don't have any food for you, you can have some though. It was probably the fact, because there were so many, um, people getting missed out. So, if, they were distribu- if that food was distributed from one place, if a certain group of, of, of widows lived nearby, if an announcement was made, food will be distributed at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, all those widows who live nearby can get in there first and take the food. Widows who perhaps were further away, it would take longer for them to get there. If they were a bit late, they would go and discover, ah, we've got no food. Now, that might not be exactly how it was worked out, but you can see how something practical or the implications of an increase in numbers in the church is the kind of cause of this complaint that crops up. And so what happens is the, the 12 summon the people together and they say, this is what's going on and here's what we think should happen. And so seven men full of the spirit of good repute and of wisdom were appointed and they took on the responsibility of ensuring that food was properly distributed. So complaints or grievances arise, can be legitimate, and they need to get sorted. What doesn't happen there is people throw in the towel. Ah, we had put all our eggs into the church basket. Now something has gone wrong. Maybe we need to rethink this this overall mission. Maybe we need to rethink the strategy. Maybe church is not the idea after all. Let's Let's try something else. No, they pressed on. They persevered through that complaint and got something sorted. And God went on to increase people into their number. The apostles don't abandon the vision, but they do put something in place that sorts out that particular complaint. So if you have, for example, ever felt disillusioned with the church, I'd add that the solution to that is not to get illusioned in the first place. Is not to imagine that everything is going to work out perfectly smoothly because we are imperfect people. And actually, sometimes we're having to cope with things we've never come across before, like a massive increase in numbers, for example. So don't get illusioned in the first place. It's like if you were going for a walk in a desert, you might see on the horizon what tantalizingly looked like an oasis. And so you head for that oasis. There's a few trees there. You can see the, what looks like water and, and growth. You think this would be a great place to kind of replenish and recover. You get there and you realize, no, actually, it's, it wasn't there. It was an illusion. It was a mirage. It was never there. And sometimes people look at church and think, yes, I'm imagining something that is so smooth, so perfect, so untroubled, that I will find wonderful peace there. I'll never be troubled. There'll, be, there'll never be any complaint to work through. There'll never be any person who I have to bear with. And you get there, you get to church, and you realize it was just an illusion. Now, that doesn't mean we throw in the towel 
with the church. But rather, we need to be biblically persuaded of what God's plan is for the church. To help us work through these things, we need a big vision of what God's plan for the church in actual fact is. So we see what this overall massive plan for God's church is in places like Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. I'll read a few verses earlier from verse 8. This is Paul writing. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's plan for the church is to show through his church how wise he is to every power and authority in heavenly places. Every angel, and I might add every demon, gets to see God's awesome wisdom, manifold wisdom, by God's plan unfailing for his church. That is the biblical vision of God's plan for the church we need to be persuaded of. Now we see this also in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21. Revelation, the Apostle John receiving a vision, a heavenly vision, and much of it focuses, focuses, rightly so, on Jesus. He sees heaven and the attention of heaven, of all the saints and all the angels, is on Jesus. So there's singing going on. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Worthy are you to take up the scroll. They are ecstatic about Jesus. Then, come and have a look at Revelation 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at, the, sorry, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. This angel is directing John's attention now to the church. The church that will be. Its ultimate destiny is this to be the bride, the wife of the Lamb, coming out of heaven in absolute radiance and glory, prepared for her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our destiny as the church. There is no group of people on this planet who have a higher destiny, who have a higher calling, who have more wonderful promises written over them from God, than this group, the church. So that's the biblical vision that we need to have impressed in our hearts that is ready to nourish and feed and help us when complaints arise, when difficulties come up, when we have to bear with one another. Because in the here and now, we're imperfect. But the vision is the same. 
The vision is glorious. The destiny of the church is glorious. That God is wanting to draw more and more people into from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. People coming into this holy, chosen race, chosen nation, declaring the excellencies of God now and forever. In that context, therefore, in this situation where we need to bear with one another, where complaints or grievances can arise, what is also important for a healthy church that understands that it's not perfect is to keep going with forgiveness. There is an ongoing need forgiveness for forgiveness. That, as one commentator has put it, needs to be unceasing even unwearying. That actually we don't tire of forgiving each other. That we don't get weary of bearing with one another. That we don't lose heart when we have to exercise patience. When we need to demonstrate humility. When we need to be meek. Now for some, meekness suggests weakness. And if you look in a dictionary, you'll probably find a definition of meekness or gentleness in the NIV that suggests kind of a weakness, docile. What it means, because Jesus was meek and Jesus was in no way weak, what it means is that actually we might be well aware of a right or something we feel entitled to, but being meek suggests we are free to waive that right in preference of someone else. So our preferences, we are happy to set them aside in order to be patient and demonstrate the love of God to someone else. So healthy church is Christ-centered and understands that it's not perfect. And a healthy church, thirdly, is this, is united. All of these characteristics that we're encouraged to put on, that Jesus demonstrated, have a bearing on our relationships with one another. And the results or the fruits of these characteristics is unity or harmony. Now, that we see that here in these uh, characteristics that are mentioned, and then it describes this in verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul understands there's going to be no such thing as a perfect church on this earth, but he expects and he desires and he encourages the church to put on love so that there might be perfect harmony. Now, why say that if it's absolutely impossible or unattainable? And what we find is Paul writes similar things even more um, overtly to other churches. So for the Philippians, in chapter 2, he writes this in verse 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And it goes on to say, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Why, I ask, would Paul encourage that church to do something which is not possible? which is unrealistic or is unattainable. Perfection 
Well, okay, that is for heaven and onwards. In the here and now, unity and harmony in God's church is not impossible. We see also when Paul writes to the Corinthians, perhaps writes in starker terms because of the the difficulties that that church is experiencing. And right near the beginning of that letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Again, why would Paul encourage them to do something which is impossible? Now, it's not unusual, certainly not desirable, but it's not unusual for those kind of divisions sometimes to occur on the basis, perhaps, of preferences. I prefer Paul. I prefer Apollos. I prefer Cephas. Or something entirely different. I prefer this way of doing things. I prefer that way of doing things. And what can happen then, rather than a united church, is you get people of like mind over here, but who disagree with people of a different mind over here. And people who prefer things being done in a different way over here. And therefore, rather than see ourselves belonging to a church, we see ourselves belonging to a church that is within a church. Maybe the particular area of service that we're involved with. That's our focus, and so that's our preference. And so if anything comes to change or threaten the specific sphere of church life that I'm involved with, I take that to be a threat. And so what happens is kind of polite uh, battles take place to make sure that if there's any kind of like promising young thing that turns up in church, we want to make sure they're in our thing. They get part of what we are serving in. We need you over here. No, we need you over here. No, come and serve in this place. No, we're the church. Not separate interest groups or separate social groups or separate groups by age or by status or by wealth or married or single. No, we are the church. Greatly varied, but we're together. We're together. And we're to put on all these things that lead to a unity. So whereas there's the potential for molehills to become mountains, actually, we let the mountains be mountains and we see the molehills for what they are. doesn't mean that sometimes you need to do a bit of groundwork just to kind of level things out again. But actually, our, our, our vision is fixed on the massive mountain that is God's plan for the church, not the molehill of personal preference that probably isn't on the basis of a big theological dispute, but just on the preference of, this is how I like things. That's what I'm comfortable with. I want things to be ordered in, in such a way. When Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, he prayed there, John 17, verse 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. 
Jesus praying to the Father, asking him also to send the Holy Spirit, is praying knowing that in the Trinity, in the Godhead, there's perfect unity. And what he's praying for is his followers to be one, perfectly one, or having complete unity. So Jesus' prayer. Now, why would Jesus pray something that he was never expecting to happen on the earth? Now, that's Jesus' prayer. That's Paul's exaltation to the church. Let us strive after this. Let's strive and, and make our aim this healthy vision of the church, a healthy church that is wholeheartedly, single-mindedly set on Jesus. Jesus is all that matters. A church that knows that it's not going to be perfect, but a church that is actually seeking and heading for unity, which sometimes means bearing with one another, not expecting perfection in other people, means forgiving other people. It means not losing heart, not losing heart when complaints arise, not losing heart, not becoming weary with forgiveness, but growing together, a healthy church that's perfectly one. Now, a body, a physical body, that is not united is a gruesome thing, is a scary thing. I don't want to see a body that isn't united. Um, a body that is healthy, a physical body that is healthy and united with itself is actually capable of quite a lot. And so in the field of athletics or exploration or scientific endeavor or whatever it might be, actually the boundaries are always getting pushed back. New records are always being set. It's almost like the human body uh, is being put through more and more things that would seem to be totally unrealistic even years before. You know, so there was a time when running a mile under four minutes had never knowingly been done. Then one guy did it. And then actually now probably people do it at school or university, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, become, it's become more expect, expected. So a healthy united body is capable of quite remarkable things. A church is also a body, and one that is healthy and united can push back boundaries. Under Christ's leadership, a healthy church can really see things happen, can really see things move on, can really see kind of new territory taken, as it were, can see new growth. So we were hearing last week at the topic evening, and as we were praying about on Friday, we were praying about revival. A healthy church can see that. A healthy church can handle it. And even in the midst of revival, there'll be things that don't work out perfectly. There'll be things, there'll even be complaints that arise when numbers are growing so rapidly, we're running to catch up with what God's doing. But that's what a healthy church can see by the grace of God, by God's wisdom, by God's plan, what he's wanting to do. Now, this needs to be maintained, I suppose, on an individual level. Uh, we all put time and effort into maintaining our personal health. We make sure that we eat most of us make sure that we sleep. And it's kind of the same for us as a body together, committing ourselves to the health of this church, thanking God for how healthy he's made us so far, but not becoming complacent on these things, seeking to maintain them, 
seeking to do whatever might be necessary in certain circumstances to bear with one another, to forgive each other, and to press on into what God has for one another. So a healthy church, Christ-centered, understanding that it's not perfect, but all the same, seeking to be united, a place of absolute harmony, where actually the world gets to see what's happening, and the world says, this is absolutely remarkable. You don't see this anywhere else. You don't see this in any other human group of people. It's simply uh, unseen. I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by it. I want to find out more. That's the kind of witness that we as a church have and can have. 